In the glittering world of Hollywood, where aspirations are transformed into silver screen fantasies, Cameron Boyce stood as a radiant star. A beloved Disney Channel icon featured in the comedy series Jesse, and later the title character in the musical fantasy Descendants. This charming young man captured millions of hearts with his charisma and talent. However, on July 6, 2019, at the young age of 20, Cameron Boyce was tragically taken from the world. His untimely passing drew attention to the often neglected challenges of epilepsy. Nevertheless, his legacy lives on, as it played a significant role in dispelling misconceptions and biases associated with epilepsy. Unless we can have these conversations about the disorder and educate people without the stigma, it's gonna, it's gonna be a long time. I like to say that epilepsy or neurological care is where women's health was 30 years mm. ago. Now we're talking about women's health more. We're talking about menopause. We're talking about all these things. Yeah. But you don't see that same conversation happening about epilepsy, for example. Those were the words of Dr. Rachel Cooperman, my guest today and the CEO and co-founder of EYES, a pioneering health tech startup. EYES is significantly contributing to the world of epilepsy by building a passive neurological exam. Its mission is to provide a more balanced viewpoint on the risks and benefits of medical interventions, starting with the concentration on pediatric epilepsy and then expanding to a variety of neurological disorders. At the heart of the EYES platform lies the utilization of eye tracking data, which powers advanced software algorithms capable of reliably detecting vital signs such as consciousness, cognition, and mood. Welcome to Digital Health Disruptors by Charm Health, powering innovative clinicians on the digital health frontier. On this podcast, we explore the trials and triumphs of pioneers at the intersection of technology and healthcare. I'm your host, Ranjani Rungan. Dr. Rachel Cooperman, a health tech entrepreneur, brings a unique blend of expertise in physics and medicine to the table. Her journey was sparked by the wisdom of her physicist father, guiding her through a demanding education from UCSF to NYU and Columbia. After years of specialized training, she launched her career at the age of 32, eventually taking the reins of the Pediatric Epilepsy Program at the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. What she values most about her work in neurology is the profound connection it allows her to form with her patients. This closeness enables her to share in the most significant challenges and be an integral part of their lives. Hello, Dr. Cooperman. It is wonderful to have you on the Digital Health Disruptors podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So, Dr. Cooperman, we are in a world where 1 in 26 people face uncertainty and stigma due to epilepsy, and the eyes innovation holds incredible promise. But before we dive into that, epilepsy is so widely misunderstood, and many people have limited knowledge about the condition, its causes, and how it affects individuals. Yeah, so epilepsy is basically a disorder where you have recurrent seizures without clear provocation. So for people with epilepsy, they have seizures under normal conditions. Like maybe, maybe they didn't get enough sleep last night, and so that would cause them to have a seizure. Or maybe they have a cold, and that would be enough to have a seizure. What is a seizure? What are the different types of seizures? So what a seizure is, is basically too much excitation in the brain that causes your body to do things or feel things that you otherwise wouldn't experience. So um, 
seizures are typically broken down by where they happen in the brain. So a convulsive seizure is, involves the whole brain and someone may fall to the ground and shake. An absence seizure, which is what our first product is based on, is also a seizure that involves the whole brain, but kids who typically have them just stop and stare briefly, but they've lost consciousness. And then focal seizures involve just a part of the brain, a focal portion of the brain, and they can also impair consciousness as well. So typically, you don't get a diagnosis of epilepsy until you've had usually more than one seizure because a significant percentage of the population has a risk of having a seizure in their lifetime. And it's really because treatment is kind of like taking Tylenol for the flu. When you take Tylenol, it helps with your fever, but you still have the flu. Seizure medicines are the same way. So the seizure medicines raise your seizure threshold so you don't seize under normal conditions, but they don't alter the underlying cause of the epilepsy itself. And so treatment's typically only initiated at the point when the benefits outweigh the risk. So most neurologists wait till two seizures because at the point you've had two seizures, the likelihood of having the third seizure is upwards of 90%. Could you walk us through that journey from being a pediatric neurologist into diving into the world of health tech? Yeah, so being a doctor is really, it's a great experience. You get involved with people's lives, but there's a lot of limitations to the way we practice medicine currently. And one of the big limitations is that we know that frequently our treatments don't work. That, for example, people with epilepsy, no matter what medicine, you know, if we choose the right medicine, the likelihood of them continuing to have seizures, no matter what we do with medicines, is upwards of 30% in certain situations. And so it can be frustrating as a clinician to try to make decisions. The goal, obviously, is to help your patients when your patients may not be able to supply you with the information that you need to make the decision. And the patient doesn't know what their seizure count is through no fault of their own. Because of the way the brain works, they just can't count the seizures or their family member can't observe them every second of the day, right? So then you're relying on information to make these really important decisions that is, is not great data, right? Well, if you ask in studies, parents don't notice that problem. And so, you know, you're trying to figure out, well, does this, do I need to do something? Do I not need to do something as a clinician? And there's no way to measure it. And so it's just a big burden on fam on caregivers to, to be the ones responsible for reporting this information to the physician. Yeah. So data is the first step. And so you believe that eyes is providing that data Exactly. So once you can start measuring things and you can start understanding the impact of the disease itself versus the medications versus interventions, then you can start having honest conversations about what's working, what's not working, what are the big challenges. It would just be amazing to know that if like diabetes, we would be able to get all that data on A1C levels and make predictions, identify the patterns that we could take all this data that we're getting and be able to manage seizures. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Important thing about epilepsy, right, is that seizures are just one symptom of the disorder. So people who have epilepsy tend to have other symptoms, particularly mood symptoms like depression or anxiety or tension or memory problems. And so treating the seizures and ignoring the other problems doesn't help anyone get better. So you have to take all these problems into account. And sometimes our treatments can make some of those worse, right? So we know certain treatments for epilepsy can make attention worse. So if you have a child who has an attention problem and you're not monitoring their attention, maybe, yes, you've got them seizure-free, but now they're not able to concentrate in school. You know, how much good have you actually done? 
So it's really complex. And until we actually start measuring these things, we're not going to understand, you know, what is the natural history of these diseases? How do our interventions benefit? And can we do better with our interventions? So we talk about attention in the context of someone who has ADHD. They have attention dysfunction, right? That's impacting their life. But in neurological disease, you could have attentional problems that may not rise to the level of a behavioral diagnosis, but it's still impacting your life in some way. So maybe you're not reaching your genetic potential when it comes to education, or you're not able to do as well on tests because it's taking you longer to do them, for example. Um, because we only talk about these kind of threshold effects, you don't measure the differences in how people are, are actually doing as they undergo treatment. Dr. Cooperman calls for new language and tools to measure and manage symptoms, empowering healthcare professionals to provide personalized care rather than premature labels. We need to move from this idea that something isn't a problem until it's you're completely not functioning in the space and instead start talking about measuring it, right? We talk about your you're having hypertension at a certain point and being pre-hypertensive. And we need those types of terminology in neurology and psychiatry so that we can start following things and being more objective about the impacts on people's lives instead of just thinking about them in this dichotomous way where either you're horribly dysfunctional or it's not a problem at all, when that's clearly not the case. How did you actually turn your idea into action? Your journey would offer some guidance, not just for those who have great ideas, but for anyone looking to turn ideas into something more substantial. So uh, the first step was really kind of to prove out my hypothesis. So families would report that when their loved one has a seizure, they see this kind of funny glazed over appearance to their eyes. And I would see the same thing when my patients would have seizures in the video EEG monitoring unit. And so the first thing that I did was basically take a pair of glasses that had built-in eye cameras, uh, cameras pointed at the eyes, and show that, yes, I can measure what these families are reporting, that I can measure that funny glazed-over appearance and identify it as seizure. And so once we did that, I filed a patent, actually, on that method. Although a promising beginning, Dr. Cooperman went through a period of uncertainty, contemplating her life's direction. While medicine followed a systematic approach, her startup required building a network and learning skills in a more dynamic, non-linear fashion. And then I sat around twiddling my thumbs, thinking about what I wanted to do with my life for a while. And, you know, my biggest supporter was really my husband. He uh, encouraged me to change directions. I was already 10 years into practice. I was kind of frustrated with the changes in medicine and I was ready for some personal growth. And uh, he encouraged me to, to do it. And I would say things like, well, I don't know anything about this. He's like, well, you can figure it out. And I'd have some other excuse, like, I don't know how to do this. He's like, well, just go figure out. And this is conversation went on, I think for over a year. And finally I was like, okay, I guess I have to go do this. And so it was really about finding the resources that I needed to support the endeavor. And I met some amazing people and networked, and that's really allowed me to kind of build the skills that I needed. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like medicine where you can go look it up in a book. 
and, you know, take those tools and was it see one, do one, teach one is the kind of saying in medicine. But, you know, it really was about, you know, building a network and, and learning the skills that I needed. Could you provide us a glimpse of what your current product eyes looks like? Yeah, so we are building a platform that takes in eye movement data to basically be able to monitor neurological health, including consciousness, cognition, and mood. Our initial product is focused on childhood obsolescence epilepsy. It's a cell phone-based app, as I mentioned, that is uh, used to uh, guide children through hyperventilation and capture seizures if a child is going to have a seizure. Her first product, the Eyes Hyperventilation Recorder, is an app designed to guide and record hyperventilation, a common trigger for absence seizures. Children who have childhood obsolescence epilepsy have a upwards of 90% chance of having a very brief staring spell or seizure when they're provoked through hyperventilation. And so it's a way to identify kids in a pediatrician's office and also be able to monitor them such that, you know, they're really responding. You can determine if they're responding to treatment. This product recently achieved a significant milestone by earning FDA approval as a class one medical device, underscoring its low risk profile and minimal regulatory constraints. In addition, EYES obtained a significant grant to support a post-market study, Dasher, that seeks to validate the accuracy of smartphone video in identifying seizures during hyperventilation compared to a traditional video EEG. Was it also the fact that technology had like ripened Yes. Yeah, so one of the big changes was from the time I did that initial clinical study until I did our next clinical study, moving from the proof of concept to a bigger clinical study, the technology had come a long way, particularly the eye tracking technology was really in its infancy before and now is really, you know, a young adult stage <laughs> of development. So that was a big thing and it's continued to develop since then. Another part was really about finding the people that could help you succeed. So from my standpoint, yes, I have a background in physics, but it's been a long time since I thought about signal processing or ever got to that level of signal processing as an undergraduate. And so it was really about finding the partners that could help me with the technical aspects of the development. The eyes hyperventilation recorder didn't happen overnight. Let's take a step back and look at its journey of refinement. I'd love to transition a little bit and talk about this delicate balance of tailoring a product to fit the needs of a healthcare professional while simultaneously serving the patients. And I'm kind of reflecting on an earlier conversation we had where you shared your insights on Steve Blank's profound principles of lean startups, where you highlight the importance of rapid iteration and customer feedback. I would love to dive a little deeper into this aspect because I think it'd be really valuable for our listeners. How have they kind of manifested in your journey? Yeah, happy to explain because they've definitely shaped the journey. So one of the historically, I, I mentioned that we did our proof of concept using a wearable pair of eyeglasses. And the glock, we were able to show that we could identify loss of consciousness with eye movements alone. So we applied for an NIH grant to prove this out in a larger patient cohort, which we were able to do successfully to show that, yes, we can identify seizures based on eye movements alone with a reasonable sensitivity and specificity, and that this could be used to guide clinical care. This was the start of Dr. Cooperman's Minimum Viable Product, or MVP journey, led by Steve Blank's wisdom. 
An MVP means crafting a stripped-down product, testing it with real customers, and embracing their feedback. It's all about dodging the risk of building something no one wants. If your initial ideas hit a roadblock, the model nudges you to pivot strategically. If success is in sight, it's a cue to stay the course and persevere. So we went back to the doctors and said, look, we set out to show we could do this. Now we have some algorithms in place and we could do this about as well as a doctor could do it. And the doctor says, that's great, but I don't need that level of detail. Like, but don't you want to know? No, I don't want to know. I don't want to know how many seizures exactly my patients are having. What I really want to know is, is my patient doing better or worse? It's like, okay, so you want a dichotomous solution and this is clearly too much data for you. Yes, this is too much data. We don't want to look at this much data. Well, that was really important feedback to get, right? So then we had to go back and say, okay, what are we going to do with this feedback? And we were able to go back to our clinical studies and say, hey, you know, we could identify seizures using the video of the eye track, just looking at the video of the eyes. And the video of the eyes are captured at about 30 hertz. Not only that, but most of the patients who had seizures in the recording had seizures during hyperventilation. It's just a small segment of the recording. So we decided to then develop a tool that would use a cell phone, the selfie video recording of a cell phone, which is roughly 30 hertz, and guide a child through hyperventilation to be able to identify the seizures. And so that feedback from clinicians then allowed us to go back and say, okay, well, we can avoid continuous monitoring. The doctors don't want that much data. The patients don't want the stigma of wearing a special device. We can intermittently capture data to get the information that's needed. And there's clearly a big unmet need here. And so we took our new product and went back to the doctors and they said, yes, like you did it. This is what we're looking for. And so, you know, this process continues, right? We obviously need, we have our first product is really, um, as I mentioned, a phone app for diagnosing childhood or identifying seizures in childhood of science epilepsy. But, you know, we have additional work to do on making it more user-friendly for kids so that the process isn't as, as challenging as it can be. And, you know, it's, it's a continual iterative process to really try to hone in on the value proposition and make sure you're getting the feedback from all the users and all the stakeholders. And this was the journey of refinement that gave birth to the Eyes Hyperventilation Recorder. So I would love to actually talk a little bit about your experience as a woman entrepreneur. It would be really insightful to hear about a specific instance where your identity as a woman played a pivotal role in shaping a decision or approach in your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, so I think the first time when I went to J.P. Morgan, this was pre previous to COVID, so it was a pre-COVID event, and I went there with my co-founder. We've been working together for a while, and he is a taller man than I am, a, a short woman. And we would be talking to investors, and the investors would direct all their questions to him, and he'd say, "No, no, I'm the COO." She's the CEO. Talk to her. And they would still turn and ask him questions. And this was like a little game that would go on for a while. It was amusing in a very sad sort of way. So that was... I'm glad you I found think, it amusing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what are you going to cry all the time? Exactly. <laughs> it's a reality. It's a stark reality. What are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, in terms of... Um, 
I think I mentioned this to you before. One of the challenges is this idea that I found that seems to impact women particularly is this, is this idea that you can mentor women to succeed. And mentoring is somehow a placement for opportunity. And it's just not the case. I mean, mentoring, I think, can be really powerful and it can increase your network, but you can't use it to open up every door. And, you know, I think that's, it's problematic because it makes people feel better that they're doing something to improve, for example, the 2% funding rate that women have when it comes to venture. But it's just not, it's not enough to really change the underlying bias that are present in the system. According to the NBCAN Pitchbook, an authoritative quarterly report on venture capital activity, in 2022, only 2% of venture funding went to women-led startups. That's down from 2.8% in 2019. This disparity is fueled by the lack of women in decision-making roles at venture capital firms, where only 12% are women. Dr. Cooperman adds an interesting and, I think, quotable perspective. In physics, when, uh, you know, there might be, when I was an undergraduate, there were, I think, three or four women in a class of 40. And all the women were the top of the class. And so we would we would have this saying, which is, you know, we'll, we'll know it's equal when there's as many mediocre women in, in physics as there are mediocre men in physics. And I think the same thing applies to entrepreneurship, which is when the women aren't the stars, that that's when we know we're even. But Dr. Cooperman faces another unique challenge. You know, it's hard to be confident about raising money. You know, I've raised money, but I have not certainly raised large rounds at this point. So for me, confidence comes with experience and, su and succeeding at milestones. So, you know, I think that's something I'm still working on, being able to be confident and say, hey, I do know what needs to happen here. I think another challenge is that my goals for this company is really to succeed in terms of improving the quality of life of people who have neurological disorders and also to make money for my investors in the process. I think one of the big challenges right now is improving the quality of life for people can get lost in the making money. And so, you know, it's hard to be confident about the messaging you're giving when the response you get is, well, you know, it's just not big enough a market. There's just not, you know, we're interested in, in bigger markets like diabetes or heart disease, not smaller markets like hmm. pediatrics or you know, neurological disorders. So, you know, there's a lot of other forces at play that impact on confidence, particularly in those kinds of settings. Mm -hmm. That actually brings me to my next point, this art of storytelling. How significant has the art of storytelling been in your journey? This isn't really about a product or technology, as you said, it's about real children and, and, and parents who are struggling. The core of how we tell stories as people is one of the core ways we communicate. And I think being able to bring together the technical and the emotional and the impact in a single storyline can really bring people along that may not have otherwise, it may not have otherwise resonated with, right? It always reminds me of these conversations where people say things like, you know, they had no idea until their loved one experienced something like that. You know, can you bring people along for the journey who may not have direct experience with something like this? Just because it's it's important, right? Yeah. How are you doing that? You have a very short amount of time, right? In that boardroom. How are you igniting their emotions? 
example, I tell the story about a little girl I used to take care of. When I first diagnosed her with childhood absence epilepsy, she was five and she was in kindergarten. And we thought we got her seizures under control. Maybe we weren't so sure. Comes back in first grade and her parents are getting really frustrated with me. And I don't know if her seizures are under control because I'm waiting for them to tell me if her seizures are under control. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Don't you have the tools to figure out if her if she's doing well or not? And I clearly didn't have those tools and being able to explain to people who haven't gone on this journey that I can't tell you as a doctor if your child is sick or not is really, I think, eye-opening for people. Yeah, thanks for that. What's the vision you have for how your product could potentially make a significant impact on this world? I think the goal is really to improve the communication between patients and their physicians, right? To empower patients to say, hey, you know, this attention problem that I'm having is really impacting me. And I can, you know, I have, we have the data now to support that. I don't need to fail out of middle school to, you know, get my neuropsych assessment so that I can support that. Hmm. And then the second component is really about supporting the development of new therapies to lower the the risk that pharmaceutical companies take on in terms of developing new therapies, because now they can have some additional information in order to measure what the outcomes are and move away from just kind of self-report that the FDA currently relies on for the development of seizure medicines. In my many conversations with you, I really felt like you had a, a lot of uh, a trust in in yourself and, and the way you presented yourself that could serve as a a great example for many people who are listening. And I wanted to ask you, what is your key of unlocking this self-trust and how do you personally foster it and see it shaping your leadership style? So I would turn it on its head, actually. (laughs) I think a successful person is someone who can fail and keep going, right? So it's, it's the ability to be told to take no Uh, you know, 99 times, and then the hundredth time someone says yes. And you could then keep going to get to that hundredth time, right? Now, it's a balance, right? Yes, you have to be confident, but then you also have to listen to the feedback that they're giving you because they're saying no. There are plenty of times where people give me feedback and I was like, oh, that feedback's garbage. But there are other times where, you know, there was clearly a signal in the feedback as to why they were saying no, and that I needed to take that and actually incorporated into whatever it was I was trying to pitch or build or sell. And so it's a balance between the humility to understand that you don't have it all right and the perseverance to say, I know I'm right enough that this is this has to happen, right? I think surrounding yourself with people who you can bounce things off of is really important because sometimes you know, it's your pride that's not letting you hear it. And other times, you know, maybe it really is just irrelevant what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 hard. Right. I mean, entrepreneurs often grapple with challenges like information overload and analysis paralysis leading to so many roadblocks. How do you recommend our listeners master this art of effectively translating all this information, the sea of information that they have into some sort of meaningful action? I think the methodology is really about getting out there and talking to people. I mean, as a clinician, I thought I understood what was motivating clinicians and patients. And the answer was I was wrong. I think over the last couple of years, we've interviewed upwards of 300 people 
throughout the ecosystem. And, um, you know, different questions geared towards different people at different stages that we needed to answer. And many of my hypotheses were wrong. And the only way to really move forward and, and get correct information is to identify the signals from the noise in, in the people in the space. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have to develop a hypothesis, test it, go back, revise it, test it, you know, move forward. And we're in that process right now, specifically around reimbursement. And it's a really challenging space to understand, okay, is our reimbursement strategy going to work? Can we prove out our financial models based on our assumptions? Can we, you know, validate these? You know, you just have to identify what you need to validate from talking to people and then gather that information and support your claims. That's so interesting. So that's a wrap for our conversation, Dr. Cooperman. I mean, your insights have truly added a a really nice layer to our talk. Your perspective will be definite valuable guidance to all our entrepreneurs and other listeners that are going to be tackling similar hurdles. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Dr. Cooperman. In early Q4 2023, Dr. Cooperman and Eyes announced a significant milestone with their first contract from a neurology clinic set to launch in mid-Q4. Negotiations are progressing to introduce their solution to a pediatric neuropsychology group at a level 4 epilepsy center. Additionally, discussions are ongoing with a major healthcare network for a six-month paid pilot involving five pediatric clinics. Thank you for listening to Digital Health Disruptors presented by Charm Health. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to us. Find out how we empower tech-forward clinicians on the digital health frontier at charmhealth.com. This is Ranjini Rangan. Stay tuned for more stories of progress 